St. Luke is the only one to record this particular parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan. He's the only one to record uh, the parable of the lost sons and the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coins and a few other of the parables. And uh, each, of the, if you trace them out, and, and uh, in my uh, seminary days, I, I had the privilege of being able to do that, of looking at just those particulars, the, the additions that St. Luke records, there is a common theme, and that theme is mercy and forgiveness of love. Uh, not that the other Gospels don't, don't contain uh, and show God's mercy, but St. Luke goes over and above, it seems, to that mercy. Today we have, it starts with this scholar of the law who comes and asks a question, and it's a burning question in everyone's minds, and even yet today, what do I need to do in order to inherit eternal life? What do I need to do to achieve heaven? Well, we live in a day and age where the answer is you, you just kind of do what you want and everyone's going to be saved anyway. Well, that's not the Catholic answer, but that seems to be the, uh, the standard answer for most of us. But we know that there's something more. If we examine it, we know there's something more we need. And it comes down to, as we hear in that second reading, of giving ourselves to Jesus Christ, that he's the one who reconcile, reconciles us to God the Father. But that reconciliation then is lived out in love. And so the scholar answers with the great commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your being, with all your strength, with all your mind. And the second commandment, of course, of loving your neighbor. This word in Greek for neighbor has to do with the one who is near. And it doesn't always mean just the one who is physically near. It's the one who is like us. So somebody who thinks like us, talks like us, speaks the same language, maybe has the same political views, has the same culture, eats the same kind of things. That's the neighbor. And yet, this scholar wishes to justify himself Again, what is the limit? How do, I, how do I love my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? How far does this love have to go? Is it just to the ones around me who think like me, who act like me? And Jesus tells this parable. And he constructs, as every parable, he constructs this parable almost perfectly to the point that we almost get, get an idea of these characters being real. There's a fault there, perhaps, for us to, to think about, but uh, he constructs this parable in such a way that there's no other way to think about it than how. A man is going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he uses that word purposely, St. Luke records. Jerusalem to Jericho is a travel of 17 miles, relatively short distance. But in that 17 miles, it drops 3,300 feet. So relatively steep. In the mountainous terrain, it takes twists and turns. There are chasms and ravines and hills all along the way. In fact, the modern road from Jerusalem to Jericho follows that ancient route. And if you're ever privileged to take that route, you realize that this is, even yet today, treacherous. Oh, it's hard and asphalt and all those things, but it is very treacherous with twists and turns. You can't see too far ahead of you because of all the twists and turns. And in the days of Jesus, of course, those twists and turns would have been prime spots 
for thieves, highwaymen, to hide out. And you come across it, when you come across a turn, you can't see that turn, what's around the corner. You come across it, they jump out at you, they knock you, they take everything that you have and leave you for half dead. I looked at that particular word, St. Luke is the only one who uses this term half dead in all, this, all the New Testament. I often find myself wondering if you're beat to death, half to death twice, are you fully dead or are you three quarters dead? But this word half dead means somebody who's completely exhausted. Somebody who, if you're half dead, you can barely breathe. There, there's, there's very little signs of life. That's what St. Luke is describing with this half dead. In fact, to be half dead, you almost look like death itself. And that's why perhaps the priest and the Levite pass on the other way. There is a Jewish law that says that you cannot touch a corpse. And if you do, you shall become impure for seven days. A priest who becomes impure cannot offer sacrifice in the temple. For those seven days, he's not allowed in the temple. And even after those seven days, he has to take a ritual bath in order to be purified and to be allowed to go back in. Maybe this priest was thinking, you know, I'm going to offer sacrifice unlike Catholic priests who are required to say Mass or, or attend Mass at least every Sunday, a Jewish priest was not demanded to offer sacrifice every week. Furthermore, think about it, he's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He's not going up to, up to the Temple Mount, he's going down. Most likely it wasn't anywhere near the Sabbath. He was thinking so far ahead that he chose not to have compassion on this half-dead man. And he goes his merry way. And then the Levite. If you want to imagine, I like to pick, the, pick this out, a Levite is like the deacons. A Levite is somebody who helps the priest. They don't offer the sacrifice, but they assist the priest in wrangling the sacrifice, of course, lambs or goats or or maybe a bull or, or a, a heifer, whatever it is. They just assist, but he probably is thinking the same thing. I want to offer and, and help offer the sacrifice, so I'm not going to help this man. I'm just, going to, I'm just going to pretend like I didn't see it, and I'm just going to keep on moving. He, too, is going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And then we have the Samaritan. Now, in order to, I don't even know what, uh, what uh, would separate us uh, enough to get the curl in our lips as much as a Jewish person hearing this parable for the first time would have, would have had. They were hated. Uh, the modern equivalent would be uh, to tell a Muslim that a Jew did this. There, there seems to be a hatred, uh, even yet today, between Muslims and Jews. But that it was a hatred that was beyond any, any rational idea of things when it came down to it. It was racist. The Jews saw the Samaritans as half-breeds. Sometimes they called them half-breeds. Sometimes they called them dogs. Even yet today, I know there, there's that song, Who Let the Dogs Out, and all those things, that dogs is, a, is kind of a term for, for a good friend, but 
to call somebody a dog, and there's certain other words that are dog-related that are, that are curses. They saw, the, the Jewish people saw the Samaritans as somebody who, they were the ones who were left behind in the Babylonian exile. In order to survive, they often married into the pagan cults around them and becoming and taking some of the culture from those pagan cults, taking some of the language from those cults, taking some worship practices. They refused to worship in, and we hear this in John's Gospel especially, they refused to worship in Jerusalem, instead choosing other sacred sites of their own choosing. So when Jesus says the Samaritan, they're thinking, yeah, if the priest and the Levite didn't respond, this Samaritan is going to finish this guy off. Obviously. Because that's what Samaritans do, right? Wrong. Jesus tells the story with a twist. The Samaritan sees him as moved with compassion. That word for compassion that's used here is the same word that we just used well, we don't, don't use the actual Greek word, but the Kyrie eleison. When we cry to God for mercy, he has mercy on this victim. He pours oil and wine in the wound. We might say, well, why is that? Well, wine is an antiseptic, of course. If you're cooking in the kitchen, you get a bad cut. Just pour a little wine on it. It's just going to be fine. It's going to sting, but it cleans the cut out pretty well. An oil, like Neosporin, covers the wound and allows the wound to heal without getting major infection. It's basic first aid. And he puts the man on his beast of burden, on his own beast of burden, and walks the rest of the way, however far it was, to to Jericho. Takes care of the man overnight and in the morning gives the innkeeper two coins, two days' wages to care for the man with the promise, if you spend more, I will pay you on my return. He doesn't even ask for a bill of receipt. He doesn't ask for an accounting of how uh, this money was going to be used. He just simply responds in love and mercy. And Jesus asks the question then, well, who is the neighbor? We assume anyone going from Jerusalem to Jericho, I don't know what that Samaritan would have been doing in Jerusalem. They would have avoided it like the plague. But we assume this man, this victim, was Jewish. If the priest was not neighbor and the Levite was not neighbor, certainly the Samaritan wouldn't have been a neighbor. They would have thought different, dressed different, eaten different, worshipped different. They would have been completely other. Who was the neighbor? A cynic would say the man, the scholar, answered the way he did so he wouldn't have to say the Samaritan. But I think he answers because he understands that the neighbor isn't somebody who's different, but rather the one who treats the other with mercy. We live in a world that's still divided, in a country that I'm I'm still convinced that we're not as divided as our media would tell us. Yes, I know we have conflicts, blacks and whites, and 
Protestants and Catholics and liberal versus conservatives and Republicans versus Democrats and pro-life and pro-abortion and all these divisions and all these things. And yes, there's right and wrong. But where I don't believe we're as divided as we are, but it begins. The division ceases when we cease to use the word they. I heard that a few months ago, and I'm, the more I ponder it, the more I realize that there's a truth here. When we recognize that our neighbor isn't just the one who's, who thinks like us, or dresses like us, or believes like us, or speaks like us, or is from the same town, or same city, or same country, but the neighbor is the one that we see needs mercy. Or the neighbor is the one who sees that we need mercy. And let's be honest, we all need mercy, don't we? In fact, that word eleison in the Old Testament is used to describe the loving mercy of God. That is a core part of who God is, not that God is a part, but it is a core quality of God, his loving mercy. God cannot cease to be loving, merciful more than he can cease to exist. He is loving mercy. And Jesus Christ comes as incarnate to show that mercy. And in a very real way, and the church scholars and fathers have talked about this, that Jesus Christ himself is the Good Samaritan, the one who is other who becomes one of us, to draw near to us, to save us, to give us everything we need, undeserved. We are the victim, beaten, half dead, alone in the ditch. We are the victim who Satan would just eat and devour and destroy. But Christ himself picks us up, gives us the remedy, puts us on his own cross, his beast of burden, and heals us. If he does that for us, how can we not do that for those around us? Not just those who are like us, but all of us as humans. Imagine a world where we understood this instinctively, that we are called to love one another, and that love is not limited to a division that we falsely have made. Yes, it means sometimes a conversion, a conversion on our part. Maybe the Jewish hearers of this parable the first time needed a little conversion instead of sneering, curling their lips. Maybe we too need a conversion. Maybe those who have wrong beliefs not just wrong because we say they're wrong, but wrong because they are wrong and not conformity in the truth. That they would see that our love of them is greater and that we, by our love, call them, invite them to right thinking. Instead of automatically going to the catechism or the Bible and thumping them over the head, which sometimes is tempting, I have to admit, but it doesn't solve anything, does it? I've heard the adage, people won't care how much we love until they know how much we care. They won't care how much we know until they see that we care for them. And the church is an institution that's founded by Jesus Christ, 
to love all, to care for all. As we come this day, we ask the Lord to help us break down every division and to know that our neighbor is the one who is in need and our neighbor is the one who responds to our need. And to love all, no matter what.